Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you are in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews and market analysis and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today, we'll delve deeper into the SPAC craze as the third SPAC ETF gears up to launch this time an actively managed one. Is it a bubble brewing in the SPAC space? And what's the broader outlook for active management versus passive in 2021? Here's my conversation with Mark Yusko. He's the CEO of Morgan Creek Asset Management. Bob Shea is the CEO of TrimTabs Asset Management. And Ben Johnson is the director of global ETF research at Morningstar. Uh, Bob, I want to start with you. There's a lot of craziness in the markets today. We were just talking about it uh, on air. Um, you were the head of Goldman Sachs uh, equity desk for 14 or 15 years. You've seen a lot of craziness yourself here. Uh, we saw today Apple getting thrown around like a, a rag doll. It was 136 to 145 in an hour for the biggest company in the world. GameStop goes, uh, GameStop goes para parabolic, then all the way back down, halted a numerous times throughout the day. What do you think uh, is going on here? There, there seems to be a little bit of a market issue um, with concerns about the COVID vaccine narrative changing a little bit. Some concerns maybe the stimulus program is not as certain or not as big as people think. And other people are saying well, there's a sideshow going on with people trying to uh, play the lower price stocks and the stocks that have been heavily shorted. Can you spend a minute and just sort this out for us? Yeah, terrific. Thank you. Uh, first, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, <clears throat> Bob. And, and yeah, um, you know, I, uh, I, I ran Goldman's uh, equity trading desk um, back in uh, the dot-com days as well. My desk was Cape Canaveral for, uh, for, for a lot of the dot-coms. And, and uh, as we've seen, there have been a lot, of, uh, a lot of people writing and talking about the similarities between uh, them then and now. And, and, and there are definitely some similarities, uh, no, no question. Um, but there are some uh, some big differences uh, um, in the environments. Um, but specifically to kind of the action we're seeing today, I, I think we're seeing, you know, definitely speculative activity uh, that's more based on on positioning, options positioning, and uh, shorter term uh, euphoric kind of sentiment. Um, and we're seeing that bubbling up. Obviously, we have uh, we have uh, money supply, which is you know, uh, making uh, new highs on a regular basis. And um, so I, on the one hand, you know, there are some similarities. On the other hand, there's some glaring differences from, from, from back then. The interest rate environment is completely well, Yeah, they, I, I guess, and feel free to uh, jump in, uh, Ben or Mark, but the, the, the similarity that I see is people are still reacting to the same euphoria. This manias still happen. The, that, uh, that dopamine rush that people still get in their heads that, that we saw so notably in 1999 when you were around, Bob, and I was reporting on this uh, as well, hasn't changed. A whole field of behavioral economics came out of a lot of this studying how people react to euphoria and to manias. Uh, and how people, um, you know, react to bubbles in general. So that certainly sounds very similar to me. What's different is the, the technology is very different. You know, when people opened their DLJ accounts in 1998, it was pretty cumbersome. You could get a confirmation. It would take 20 minutes to move the next day. Today, you're sitting in a bar with your boyfriend or girlfriend uh, and your Robinhood account, and you trade stocks like you're on FanDuel, like a sports game almost. Uh, it has similarities. Uh, isn't that the, the difference here this time? It's a lot easier to do this. 
that back then we had chat rooms, if you remember, for the IPOs where we'd you know, yeah. price something at 30, but it would open at 200. Um, and, and that's where there's some similarities. You have, you know, where, where there are these little pockets of, you know, what we're seeing in these short squeezes. There's de- definitely some speculative activity. The, what, what is most glaring right now is kind of the one-sided options positioning where, the you know, per- perhaps some of the, the cohort of investors that you were speaking to earlier are using leveraged options plays to express bullish views in a lot of these stocks and a lot of, uh, you know, kind of the, the NASDAQ. What's, what's very different is the interest rate backdrop, very different. What's very different, you know, we focus on free cash flow um, at, at Trim Tabs, and I'll just tell you that uh, the NASDAQ 100 from 2000 to 2021 is very different, you know, from, a, from a, yeah. uh, the percentage of the NASDAQ 100 that is free cash flow or, or cash flow positive is 99% versus 80 um, you know, free cash flow margins and free cash flow yield, just much, much healthier. Now, does that mean yeah. we, we can't correct? Absolutely we can. But the speculation, it's not like if I look at the big glaring divergences that occurred towards the end of the 2000, uh, into 2001, and, and they just don't exist with regards to, you know, credit spreads, et, et cetera, and big, big breadth divergences. Yeah. What we have, in it is, is uh, and I'll finish on this, is literally that, what we have is this, it feels like, you know, what, it, you know, the beginning uh, stages of a long-term recovery on the one hand, and then this kind of very speculative action that we're seeing in the yeah. last few days. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Mark, I want to talk to you about, uh, about SPACs, but I wonder if you can react to what Bob was, was saying there. I think he brings up a good point. There's obviously the start of a long-term recovery, and yet there's, today it feels like a blow-off top kind of, in a way. Um, I know we're supposed to talk about SPACs here, but any thoughts about what's happening right now? No, we can definitely get to SPACs, but uh, definitely have a reaction in that, you know, the gamification. I think it's interesting that we're talking about GameStop all morning uh, in a world where investing has has truly become gamified. Uh, you know, people were in lockdown. They couldn't bet on sports because sports wasn't happening. And suddenly, DraftKings and others uh, got people's attention focused on on the market. So uh, I do think we're at a speculative uh, peak. I do think this could be, could, you know, we don't know, but it could be that event, that that seminal event that that triggers some some motion downward. Um, but it is pretty yep. wild, Bobby. You're right. Yeah, Ben, your 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 thoughts. You're an old hand. You've been watching the markets for many many years as well. Um, what? How does this kind of? It, it, is it a blow off top in your opinion right now, or uh, is something else going on? And how does it affect the world of ETFs? Yeah, Bob, I, I think the the key term that the market on is gamification. In you know what might be different today versus you know, what we saw in 2000 is. is exactly what you've described, the fact that I can walk around with a supercomputer in my hand, make trades and make options trades all day, every day, in some cases maybe allocating you know, capital that arrived to me via a stimulus check in, into the markets, um, you know, and see a little animated confetti drop out anytime I make some money in the market. You know, that, I think, is, is only played on and really exacerbated all of those animal spirits, all of the, the worst of uh, our behavioral biases this, this go around, and I think it's gotten to the point where, you know, many professionals, many people watching the markets, you know, 
myself included, have gotten to the point where we're, we're wondering, are, are we the crazy ones in, in all of this? Or are we missing something that, that all these other people aren't? And, you know, usually that's when you, if you can't ring a bell at the top, it's probably a good time to start yeah. ringing it close enough to the top. Yeah, we are. Uh, no, you're not crazy. And the answer to all of this is we have seen this before. And I feel like launching into, you know, behavioral economics 101, but we don't have the time to do that. But the, this was all very well studied over the last uh, beginning about 1980 uh, by, by, by people like, you know, Robert Schiller and uh, other people like that and won Nobel Prizes for what's going on here. But I want to move on here. Let's talk about SPACs a little bit because, uh, Mark, I've got you on specifically. You've got a SPAC ETF coming this week. I think it's the third one. Um, this is actively managed now. Uh, we yes. talked on the air about this a little, but what imp impresses me about this is two-thirds of the companies will come uh, that you're picking will come from companies that have already chosen a partner, one-third from companies that are still seeking startups. I, I, what's amazing to me is how you make the decision on active management in this kind of environment and picking a company that hasn't even done a target yet. How would you even decide that? How, tell us about this, how, how you're picking this. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's about the people, Bob. You know, people and management teams, uh, the, the great ones tend to win. And so, you know, the nice thing is ourselves and, and Exos, our partner, you know, we've been doing this to collectively for five decades. We've been partnering with management teams. We've been picking uh, the winners from the losers. And, and I think the big opportunity here is to take this superior structure, which is if, if you're a high growth company of the future, right? A company that, that has really big upside uh, and doesn't want the hassle of the traditional IPO process, doesn't want to be encumbered by uh, not having the ability to make forward-looking statements. You have this wonderful innovation in SPAC structure that allows these companies to, to get public. And therefore, the great management teams, the ones that you want to partner with for decades to come, uh, become pretty readily available for investors and pretty apparent to professional investors like ourselves. So we're excited to bring this active approach to a market that I think is really in its infancy. I mean, I, I said, you know, when we were talking last week that, you know, 2020 probably goes down as the year of the SPAC, right? More SPACs were issued, more dollars were raised, and there are those that want to call it a bubble. But it's not a bubble. I mean, a SPAC is a legal structure. It's like mutual fund or ETF. And the people that criticize SPACs today are the same ones that criticized hedge funds 10 years ago or criticized mutual funds 30 years ago. Um, when lots of people like a structure and people have success utilizing it, other people you know, may not like that. So we're very excited about the opportunity, very excited about the market. And you bring up the most important point, and we've been talking about it with the craziness of the markets. The average investor has to navigate extreme valuations, extreme attraction of these markets for unsavory types to, to bring companies public. And by focusing on quality, focusing on uh, the best teams and the best ideas and the best companies, I think you can get great returns. Yeah. Focus on quality is all well and good, but it's a pretty confusing universe out there. I want to open this up to, uh, to uh, Ben and, uh, and Bob's comments, but I want to first run a comment on the explosion in SPACs uh, from former Goldman CEO Lloyd Blankfein. Uh, he was on this morning talking about exactly this. Let's run the bite and we'll chat on the other side. If a few of these go bad 
or they were overpaid, and some people made a lot of money and investors lost money, people are going to say, where you know you achieve the economic equivalence of an IPO, but where was the process and diligence that we all associated with a rigorous IPO diligence process? And that kind of drops out. Now, I'm not saying that they're all bad or that any of the ones that you could bring up are bad. bad. Some of these won't work. And I, my advice to people who are doing this now would be really, really diligent, really, really document. But you know, again, in hindsight, if something goes bad down the road, people will look back and you know, you know, show trials to follow. Yeah, exactly. So Ben, let me get your take on this. Um, we're going to now have three SPAC ETFs out there. But I think the relevant line here from Lloyd is we have the economic equivalence of an IPO. But where was the process and the due diligence that we see with the rigorous IPO process? Is that a fair comment from from uh, Lloyd Blankfein about the, the whole SPAC explosion? Yeah, I, I think it's a fair comment. And I would argue that it's more so a, a functional equivalent of an IPO from an issuer's point of view. From an economic point of view and in the investor's point of view, most importantly, I, I think it's an IPO that effectively shifts more of the risk and potentially less of the return uh, onto investors, that investors in, in this case and the majority of these cases will be the ones that wind up being the bag holders. You know, looking at research produced off the desks of my colleagues at, at PitchBook, they, they see this as a fleeting phase, as a, a means of raising capital that speaks to the moment that we're in and the difficulty that a lot of these firms would have going through the traditional IPO process, they expect that it'll come and go. And if you look at really the economic equivalent in, in terms of stocks that are already out there on the marketplace, be they stocks that came to market through the IPO or stocks that are simply smaller and have greater growth prospects, I look back at the performance of the oldest SPAC ETF, SPAK is the ticker there, which has only got a few months worth of track record under its belt. And its performance has been half that of the Vanguard small cap growth ETF over the course of the past few months. And it's been half that of the First Trust U.S. Equity Opportunities ETF, which invests in traditional IPOs. FPX is the, the ticker there. So investors have to ask themselves whether it makes sense to arbitrarily limit their investment opportunity set to a handful of names that are coming to the market through a very novel means and one, again, that probably no. uh, is disfavorable from an investor's point of view because there's a lot of value that accrues to the end investor through that normal IPO process, uh, a very thorough vetting yeah. by many pairs of very well-trained, um, you know, very detail-oriented eyeballs that yeah. are going right. to try to assess how much that thing is going to actually be worth at the end of the day. I just want to oh, <laughs> vehemently disagree there. Um, you know, what's interesting is uh, a SPAC IPO is an IPO. It has been vetted. It is even taken public by many of the same firms that Mr. Blankfein uh, refers to. You know, it's typical commentary from an incumbent, right? SPACs took up over a quarter of IPOs last year. That means less business for the incumbent. So it's not shocking that they would criticize. The idea that this is bad for investors is simply not true. The average IPO, the average investor can't participate. Those IPO shares are allocated to the big fat cat clients of the big Wall Street brokerage firms, not to the average investor. 
a SPAC IPO, because it goes public at a uh, $10 price, is available to everybody. And since you don't know what the deal is going to be, you don't have the speculative frenzy on the day one of trading. So you can actually acquire a position. Then when the deal is announced, again, by quality management teams of quality growth businesses, you've seen outstanding performance. So the last couple of months, not really relevant in performance terms. Look over right. the last year. Look at a basket of SPACs, more than double the return of the S&P. It's a fantastic structure. It's changed over the last 30 years. It's nowhere close to what it was in the early days in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it actually is a boon to the average investor. But there must, I think Ben's point is there must be a reason why suddenly SPACs have, have exploded so much. There is an advantage there to is. the process for the people that are using the SPAC, SPAC system. I think what Ben is expressing is, is some concern about that process. Are we going to be down the road six months from now saying, you know, the SPAC boom has, has gone bust because so many SPACs came public that uh, were, some would say, and Blankfein was implying, not necessarily ready to come to market. Is that a fair observation? Again, I, I, I don't think it is by and large. I, I think as, as you and I discussed on Friday, of course, there will be people and, and management teams and sponsors drawn to this structure that shouldn't, and, and those will have bad outcomes. But is every IPO a good outcome? Not even close, despite yeah. the, the rigorous yeah. uh, vetting, because at the end of the day, Wall Street gets paid to take companies public. So they're going to take companies public. Yeah. like the old uh, Doritos commercial, go ahead and eat them, we'll make more. And so at the end of the day, look at the companies that have gone public using the SPAC IPO. And you ask, Bob, what's changed? What changed really was Chamath and Virgin Galactic, where really yeah. robust companies of the future, these companies in electric vehicles, in yeah. uh, video gaming yeah. and e-sports and e-commerce and uh, uh, space travel. These companies that yep. if you had to have five years of profit, if you could only make commentary on historical yeah. revenues and cash flows, you wouldn't be able to do a, a roadshow and tell your story. What yeah. the SPAC structure yeah. allows is open-ended commentary about future story. And it gives these high growth great businesses, a platform to, I think, bring uh, pro what had yeah. been private businesses, uh, the opportunity to be invested in by the individual investor, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you more about that in the podcast um, and Chamath and how it changed the business. But I want to move on a little bit and talk with uh, Bob about active management. And, and, and Bob, um, this is a slightly different story, but you run an actively managed fund in trim tabs, the all cap U.S. free cash flow ETF. Um, and you have been investing and in, really trim tabs is all about free cash flow as the key metric. Can you very briefly just tell us why is that the most important thing to you? Is it even more important than actual earnings? Yeah, um, as you know, uh, the, you know, management has great latitude and discretion in uh, in how they report earnings, um, and, and we at Trim Tabs believe that free cash flow profitability, uh, which is the focus of our investment strategies, and our research shows that free cash flow profitability just generates a better risk-adjusted return compared to other property, uh, pro excuse me, other popular quality indicators like return on equity and return on assets, gross margins, earnings persistence, et cetera. 
um, and uh, you know to to get into uh, we we do quant. Uh, proprietary quant screening uh, of the Russell 3000, and nothing gets into our uh, our, our active ETFs that doesn't have very strong uh, free cash flow scoring. Yeah, so it, it, essentially you're applying free cash flow. It's harder to futz around with free cash flow than it is with the with with, with earnings, and that it's a pure a pure look at how companies are doing. Is that the point? That's the point. Yeah, and uh, and yeah. we have decades okay. of research that. Uh, empirical research to uh, to to point to that support. Now, that. when I look at this, it looks like a high qual. It looks like a high quality fund. So you're, I'm looking at the top holdings here: J.P. Morgan, Apple, Morgan Stanley, Microsoft, and Amazon. Here, it kind of looks like a high quality fund. What, what's the criteria for in inclusion here? Is it just cash Again, flow? High high free cash flows, quant scores, um, and in the case of uh, of, of the big financials in there, there's uh, you know there is a, a, a more of a, an active macro tilt as you know free cash flow is 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 not you know banks are not typically measured on free cash flow. However, uh, with uh, interest rates where they were when these went in, um, and, then, and then there's been some price appreciation. Um, these uh, obviously have great quality of earnings, but also uh, you know kind of an active macro tilt towards uh, the yield curve. Um, absolute level and, and steepening as it has. Okay, going to have to leave it there, guys. Very fascinating conversations. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is our Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the conversation with Mark Yusko of Morgan Creek Asset Management. Mark, thanks very much for staying with us. I just wanted to ask a couple more questions on the whole SPAC ETF and the SPAC space in general. Can you, one of the things that I see a lot here with these SPACs is fairly high expense ratios. What, and obviously, there's a lot of trading going on here. What's the expense ratio for this uh, SPAC ETF uh, that you're launching? Yeah, 1%. 1%. Okay. Um, th that's high compared to most um, ETFs. Um, is one of the concerns here is that you may have a fairly high portfolio turnover rate. Um, maybe that'll lead to higher trading costs, capital gains distributions. Is that an issue for investors in, in this kind of situation? Yeah, I, I think as you and I talked about last week, one of the things is active versus passive comparisons. You know, active management historically has a higher expense ratio than, than passive management. And, uh, you know, there's even the, the, the race to zero on the passive side. So basically no fees and they just sell your information uh, to the to the big uh, high frequency traders. So we believe that this space in particular, active management is really key. And therefore, you want to have a professional team. And so we're going to have some some higher expenses between ourselves and Exos uh, to cover there in terms of of a lot of trading and, and capital gains. You know, one of the nice things about the, the SPAC structure is, particularly for the piece where you're buying pre-announcement, uh, the deal announcement window is about 12 to 24 months. So in many cases, by the time the deal's announced, you're going to have long-term capital gains as opposed to short-term. And in most of the cases, post-merger announcement, we're buying into companies that we actually want to hold for many, many years, right? We believe these are the companies of the future. And so it's the work before you do the buy that takes this kind of value uh, discipline that, that, you know, I come, that's my background and, 
Exos comes from the, the trading and market making background. And together, I think we're going to have a, a very solid portfolio that I think ultimately could be quite tax efficient as well. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a little while ago while we were discussing it in the show that the, the sort of big moment for SPACs came with Chamath Palahipatia and, and the success he had uh, with his first SPACs that were out there. Virgin Galactic did very well um, yep. uh, itself. And yet, prior to that, SPACs weren't very highly thought of. They were largely used by small cap companies. They didn't have very good track records overall. So you, you, you had an event here, a specific event that helped make SPACs on the map. I'm wondering if you could address the sort of criticisms here uh, that I constantly get from people who say, you know what, Bob, this is not as a rigorous a way to go public. Uh, there is less disclosure. Um, they are allowed to make forward-looking statements that IPOs are not. Um, and some people are not so sure that that's the right thing to do at all. Um, how do you, you know, address that particular line of criticism that it's it's not just that it's a it's a better mechanism for going forward. It's just an easier mechanism to get yourself public. Look, it's it's a it's a it's a great thought uh, that that if it were true that there you know was lower levels of scrutiny and and uh, really lower levels of regulation that that it it, it would be something you'd you'd want to avoid. You know what's interesting is it's it's a historical change or an evolution. You know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, when when the SPAC structure really came into vogue, you're absolutely right, Bob. It was a, a less preferred way of, of going public, and it was kind of for the leftovers, those that got rejected in their bid to go public. And most of the SPACs were done by industrial companies, which had very poor prospects, and financial sellers that were just unloading on unwitting public investors. There was a big change in 2015 with the, the actual structure around SPACs that basically prohibited a lot of the shenanigans that, that went on before. Now, why did it take three years between you know, the change in the regulations and Chamath? Just people weren't really sure if these were gonna stick and if it was really gonna become a legitimate means to uh, going public for real businesses. And I think what you've seen, and it's it's not just you know Virgin Galactic, there's DraftKings, and, and myriad other really impressive companies run by impressive management teams that have found that one, it's less costly to do a SPAC than traditional IPO. Two, for a high growth company of the future, you really do have this advantage in that, you know, I don't have to have profits. I don't have to have history. I can tell you my story. And where I get the most excited, Bob, is I've been an investor in the private markets for, you know, three decades. And one of the things that happened over the last decade is those private companies were staying private longer and all that wealth was accruing to you know, wealthy individuals who were accredited investors and who could invest in those private partnerships. This allows some of those companies to come public and get those stocks in the hands of uh, traditional investors. Right. But that's some of the, what you just said is some of the reasons people bring up as a warning signs. I, I don't have to have, um, Profits. I don't have to have a long history. Um, uh, I, I no need for to announce ten years of you know prior profits or anything like that. That that's part of the reason people are concerned about this. I also see signs of of you know euphoria here. I mean, it's one thing mm -hmm. for a company that's an operating company to try to go public, but what do you think when we have suddenly we've got former congressmen, authors, or actors, or sports figures 
announcing they want to do a SPAC. Doesn't this raise a little bit of a red flag with you? A hundred percent, Bob. I, I, I could not agree more. And it's precisely why the Morgan Creek Exos uh, ETF is active, right? We completely agree that the best will always be attracted to a superior structure, whether it's the best venture capitalists or the best growth equity providers, uh, the best mezzanine debt financiers, the best companies will get the first opportunities. And then if a structure is successful, the less uh, palatable um, players will, will show up. And, and we agree completely that you want to avoid uh, the real you know, pretenders. And for us, that's why active, is, active management is so critical here. If you can avoid the losers, right? We know they're gonna be winners. We know they're gonna be losers. Not all SPACs are gonna be great, just like not all stocks or not all IPOs are great. But yeah. if you can avoid the losers, the gains will take care of themselves. SPACs accounted for almost half of all the money raised last year. It was something like 160 billion and SPACs were something like 80 billion. Um, yeah. Do you think we could have a similar number this year or do you think SPACs would do better? I mean, how SPACs versus traditional IPOs, how, how do you think the money will come down? Uh, look, I think two things are going to happen. And, and Bill Gurley wrote a great blog post in his uh, Above the Crowd on this. And he said, look, there are three options to go public, right? There's traditional IPO, there's direct listing, right? Just a Dutch auction, and then there's SPACs. And what he said, and what I agree with, and hence the reason we're launching this ETF, is that we think SPACs are going to become the preferred method for these really uh, superior high growth, you know, institutions, or, or I should say industries of the future. And that's why you do see a predominance of, of technology companies taking advantage. And those are the businesses that you want to own. You know, look how great FANG has done over the last decade. Look how great technology IPOs have been. Uh, we think those companies, because they have better control, more flexibility, and lower costs, are going to migrate to SPACs. And we think the, the future is bright. So I do think there'll be a higher percentage this year and uh, a lot of winners. Uh, when is the uh, SPAC ETF going to start trading? Uh, we launch tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, SPXZ is the ticker, and uh, really excited, and really excited to talk to you about that on, on the, the eve before. I feel like a kid at uh, Christmas Eve. We'll have you back. Again, this is a hot investor topic. A lot of good reasons to be excited and a lot of reasons to be cautious. But you've heard about my caution yeah. and uh, you've answered all those questions. Mark Yosko, thank you very much for joining us. Mark is the CEO of Morgan Creek Capital Management. And of course, you're listening to the ETF Edge podcast. Everybody have a healthy, happy, and safe trading week.